For many, the dream of owning a home in this country is, is really just that. It's a dream. There's a lack of availability. There's a lack of affordability. Uh, just over a week ago, Prime Minister Trudeau put a new minister in charge of tackling this issue. Sean Fraser is the new Minister of Housing, Infrastructure, and Communities and joins us now. And Mr. Minister, this, uh, this portfolio is new. It's new to you, but it's also new in the sense that it now combines housing and infrastructure. How do you see it working now as you, you kind of dig in and get to work here? Um, Look, I I think it's absolutely the right move to be combining the housing and infrastructure portfolios uh, because it it recognizes that you you can't really do one without the other. Um, When we talk about uh, decisions to build uh, public transit systems, uh, we should not just be talking about uh, the speed of the train or the uh, quality of the uh, station. Uh, we should be talking about the people who are going to ride it from the community where they live to the building or, or uh, site where they work. Um, when we talk about uh, wastewater uh, products, uh, or uh, infrastructure rather, uh, we can't only be thinking about uh, whether the pipes uh, work, uh, but what development opportunities are they going to open up so more people have a roof over their head. Uh, when we build in by design uh, considerations about how infrastructure will impact housing affordability and accessibility, we're going to be able to leverage a heck of a lot more productivity uh, out of every public dollar that we spend to put a roof over the heads of more Canadian families. Uh, So from my perspective, uh, this is absolutely the right approach. And by taking a a united look at the housing and infrastructure portfolio uh, will help us realize that um, uh, people don't live their lives in uh, uh, one infrastructure policy area at a time. Uh, They live their lives in communities, uh, which consist of both housing and infrastructure. And this also gets into hearing you explain this into areas of jurisdiction, uh, which level of government is responsible for what projects and planning and all those sorts of things. So uh, how do you how do you address that and how do you work with uh, whether it's uh, provinces or with cities or with smaller communities to make sure that everybody's on the same page when it comes to this? Uh, first of all, uh, you got to remember who you're working for. Uh, and in, in my case, and in the case of anyone who's uh, elected at any level of government, uh, you're working for the constituents who elected you and for uh, in federal politics for Canadians more broadly. Um, one of the things that has become uh, very apparent to me after eight years as a member of parliament is that when somebody comes into your office and explains to you that they're living with a very real problem, the last thing that they want to hear is why that is somebody else's problem to solve. They want to hear what you're going to do to help. Uh, So the signal that I want to send to Canadians is, yes, there is mixed jurisdiction, but we are going to help. Uh, We're going to work with provinces and territories uh, in areas that are within their jurisdiction to help incentivize the kind of changes that will make uh, uh, home construction uh, go more quickly and and, uh, put a roof over the head of more Canadians. Uh, But there's also areas within the uh, federal framework that we can tackle unilaterally. Uh, Some of these include direct subsidies uh, for uh, affordable housing that's going to support low-income households. Uh, uh, Others uh, include what we might be able to do uh, around uh, tax policy. Others will look at whether we're bringing in the skilled workers that we need to help build more homes. Uh, But there are policy areas, certainly, that may be within the exclusive purview of another level of government that we're still going to try to help with because we think it's the right thing to do. Look at the Housing Accelerator Fund. This is a program that is currently taking applications for about another week or so. Uh, This is a program that will say to municipalities directly, if you are going to show us how you're going to build the houses, 
we're going to put money on the table to support the investments that will work in your community because we know that the solution in small town Nova Scotia is not the same as the solution in downtown Toronto. If we allow communities to say uh, we need a little bit of money for uh, transit, which will allow more people to consider moving to this community uh, and another community to tell us what they really need is to adopt a digital permitting system so they can move through a backlog of uh, uh, construction permits more quickly. Uh, we're go- we've created a program that is able to support both kinds of projects uh, and not just those two. I only use them by way of example. Uh, but my uh, my sense is that if we work with local communities, uh, put incentives on the table, including cash incentives through programs like the Housing Accelerator Fund, uh, we're actually going to be able to leverage not only the areas within uh, federal jurisdiction, but inspire change within other levels of government that will lead to more communities with fewer people who struggle with housing. And how do we do this for lack of a better word, how do we do this quickly? You touched on a couple of the issues here. There's availability. There's affordability. Uh, if if we're just, you know, trying to keep up with demand, are we ever going to address either one of those issues? So, uh, look, your question is, <laughs> how do you do it? Um, there's no uh, there's no shortage of things we can do. In my sense, is we have to do as many of them as we can. Uh, one of the things that I uh, hope to to achieve is, is to help people see that there's not just uh, tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of homes that are being put up somewhere. Uh, I hope that they see a plan in their community, in their province, for how the investments we're making are actually going to reveal themselves to families like them. Uh, people don't care about the dollar figure behind a particular program as much as they do understanding that that program will support them or their neighbours. When we work with communities through, for example, the Housing Accelerator Fund, we're going to have an official plan that's sent to us about how a particular community is going to build more houses. Residents of that community will know that there is, in fact, a plan being worked on. Uh, We can't expect in the next number of weeks or even months Uh, that we're going to make up for decades uh, of insufficient investment in affordable housing, uh, or that we're going to overcome all of the challenges associated with the need for rapid home construction in a a post-COVID environment that has seen increased costs, choked supply chains, and and, and higher interest rates. Uh, The reality is we need to be honest with people that, yes, there's a major challenge. Uh, It has developed over many years, but by adopting plans today and demonstrating that this is on a path to uh, a a future that will have housing for more Canadians that's affordable, uh, we can be uh, real with people and achieve serious progress. It'll take a little bit of time, uh, but I don't think it's impossible. Mr. Minister, you're likely aware, I'm sure you are, uh, of the recent uh, statement by the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation that said, The country needs to build three and a half million homes. That's on top of the current pace of building just to restore affordability by 2030. And I'm curious if you agree with that assessment. Um, Look, I'll leave it to the uh, uh, folks who make uh, their recommendations independently uh, to characterize what the exact number ought to be. Uh, There are others who will uh, estimate the need is somewhat greater and others who will estimate it somewhat less. Uh, But the reality that I'm Uh, thinking of is the opportunity to experience the full range of benefits associated with economic and population growth. Uh, For what it's worth, a little bit of context about uh, why I got into politics. Uh, I come from a community my entire life that had 
all of the young people move away to pursue economic opportunity somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm one of them. I spent five years uh, living and working in Alberta after I had to pay off my student loans going through my uh, educational background. Uh, and it was great that I had that opportunity. Uh, but the reality is the same thing was true for most of my five sisters, not that they lived in Alberta, but moved to other provinces. Uh, and I saw that it wasn't just my family. I saw young people moving away uh, because there wasn't economic opportunity. And that started to reveal itself in really troubling ways. Schools were closing down. Hospital services were eliminated from the largest regional hospital in that part of Nova Scotia. Uh, and over the last couple of years, we've embraced change. We've embraced population growth. And we're no longer having uh, conversations about schools and hospitals closing. We're having conversations about whether we can build houses quickly enough to accommodate all the people who want to move to our communities. So this isn't uh, a question about uh, whether we should try to build enough houses to uh, make sure people can afford a home. It's about how we're going to do it most effectively. Uh, we need to continue to experience the benefits of economic and population growth, but we have to make sure we're growing the absorptive capacity of communities to accommodate the people who want to make a contribution. Uh, the way that you do that is not simplistic uh, because it requires nuanced solutions in different communities across the country. It may be that some communities, uh, the market is taking care of itself, but a lot of people uh, cannot afford to get into the market and need direct government support. Uh, there may be other parts of the country that are suffering from uh, real challenges in the market uh, where uh, supply chains aren't able to get products in a timely way to the builders who are going to do the building uh, or where there is so much interest in communities like Moncton or Halifax uh, that are the fastest two growing cities in the country uh, to be able to even have the workers available uh, that will build the houses quickly enough for the people who want to move here. So we need to engage with communities at a local level, advance the solutions, uh, that will help the most people most quickly. Uh, but the uh, the counterfactual is, is so strong uh, that we need to make the housing investments to accommodate people who want to move in uh, because the alternative of having them uh, not choose our communities or to move away to another country or to another city uh, are, are too great to ignore. You spoke about nuanced solutions, and I wanted to ask you about immigration, which is uh, your previous responsibility, but I don't see how we can address housing without talking about immigration. And there's two sides to this. Uh, the more people that move to Canada, it would seem the greater uh, the demand for housing, but you can't build new houses if you don't have people to build them. And if you talk to people in the construction industry, they need more people coming in to address that issue. You're absolutely right. And it's no coincidence uh, that we hosted our uh, immigration levels planning announcements last fall with the Canada building trades. Uh, it's no coincidence that uh, while I was still immigration minister, uh, we adopted changes to the express entry system that created a dedicated pathway for skilled tradespeople who are going to help and come build homes in this country. Uh, when I talk to developers, uh, though it's not the only challenge, uh, getting access to the talent that they need uh, in the skilled trades in particular is a real bottleneck for a lot of them to put up the buildings that they currently plan to put up. Uh, there are certainly other bottlenecks around permitting, uh, particularly around the economics for affordable housing that we need to work on them with. But if they don't get the builders, none of it matters. Uh, so we need to continue to train Canadians and at the same time, bring in the people who have the skills from other countries already to help solve this social challenge in Canada. Uh, I do think that there is some room for us, uh, though I am obviously a 
a major proponent of ambitious immigration levels uh, that are tailored to meet the economic needs of the country. Um, I also know that we have current challenges in certain communities across Canada with our temporary immigration programs, uh, which currently uh, operate in in a a demand-driven way without a particular cap. I look at the international student program in particular and see that there are enormous pockets of people landing in certain communities that are putting acute pressures on those communities. So there are things that we need to do, uh, but the answer cannot be to uh, restrict immigration. Uh, The answer must be to build more houses in in a thoughtful way uh, that meets the needs of our communities and allows us to maximize the economic potential uh, that immigration represents. And it would seem in previous generations, although it was never particularly easy perhaps to save for a down payment for a new home or to figure out uh, the affordability question. Uh, we talk about interest rates now. There were times where interest rates on mortgages were much higher uh, than they are now. But it seemed that home ownership for most generations was always in the cards. Uh, what do you say to what seems to be a growing number of people uh, in their in their 20s and their 30s who now see almost no hope of ever owning their own home? I tell them that Canada's Minister of Housing believes that if you are working in a job, you should be able to afford a place to call home. Uh, I am working very hard every day now uh, to help turn that uh, vision into a reality for Canadians. We've recently had the first home savings account, uh, which allows Canadians to save up to $40,000 tax-free for their first home. Now, there's an awful lot of people who hear $40,000 and think that is a lot of money. Uh, But we have seen tens of thousands of people, uh, young Canadians, who have already taken advantage of this new program. We're going to continue to put policies in place that make it easier for people to save up down that that down payment. But we also want to work to build more homes, which will put uh, downward pressure on, on pricing in communities or build more housing at an appropriate price point so more Canadians can get into the market in the communities where they want to live. Again, these solutions are not simple, but by creating uh, incentives for people to save up for that that down payment and by incentivizing the construction of more homes at a price point that more Canadians can afford, we can have a very important and meaningful impact. Uh, But the solutions in a different community, uh, in different communities, have a wide degree of variance, uh, but we're going to advance policies that both allow Canadians to more effectively save up that down payment so they can get into the market, uh, but we're going to work tirelessly to get more homes built in communities at price points that Canadians can afford. Well, safe to say it is a complicated uh, issue and you've got your work cut out for you. We do appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. I look forward to our next conversation. We continue our conversation tonight about uh, the housing crisis Uh, really right across this country. And uh, previously we heard from the new housing minister, housing and infrastructure minister, Sean Fraser. And it's interesting as we're joined now by Carolyn Witzman. Carolyn is a a housing policy researcher and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. That uh, Carolyn, I guess it was last week that Prime Minister Trudeau said that housing is not a primary federal responsibility. I guess we can parse words about what he was really getting at here, but I know you've taken issue with that in an opinion piece at theconversation.com. So I'm curious as to why, and and I guess where you would disagree with the prime minister on this. Well, it's it's for three reasons. The first is that uh, almost a century of uh, Canadian intervention in housing uh, through direct policies, through taxation, et cetera, from the Dominion Housing 
Act in uh, 1936 onwards. Um, the second reason is that the federal government has adopted the National Housing Strategy Act, which says that it does indeed have the um, uh, responsibility of ensuring the basic human right to housing. And uh, I guess the third thing I'd say is at the moment, the National Housing Strategy has uh, projected 89 billion dollars to be spent between 2018 and 2028 so if that's not a federal responsibility um why are they spending so much money on it well and i do want to get into some of the very specific things you think the federal government can do to help at least address both the affordability and the availability uh, issue right now when it comes to to home and home ownership uh, in this country. But fundamentally, if we can't get agreement at the various levels of government about who is ultimately responsible, uh, how much faith should we have as Canadians that this is going to get solved? Oh, about zero. I mean, we have to get beyond the sort of blame shifting and finger pointing that's kept, you know, refugee families on the street, growing numbers of homeless people and, um, you know, uh, growing unaffordability of rental housing and ownership housing. And we have to look at what each level of government can do with other partners, including the private and nonprofit development sector. And I know when it comes to making making the case for why this is and should continue to be a, a primary federal responsibility, you point to some some programs that were in place many years ago, in some cases many decades ago, and which successive federal governments have abandoned. If we can just maybe start there, what was what was our federal government doing? 20 or 30 or 40 years ago that it isn't doing anymore that has at least in part, in your opinion, maybe led us to where we are now? Well, immediately after World War II, the federal government helped uh, municipalities and provinces buy land. It provided direct grants and enabled about a million homes for returning servicemen. So that was about the biggest um, program that the federal government's ever done, its most successful program, but in some ways its greatest failure because um, it sold off those homes and the first buyers benefited. They bought homes for about $6,000, maybe two, three times the um, average working family's um, annual income. Um, but now the same homes, including ones that haven't been renovated, are selling for $2 million. So um, that was sort of phase one. Uh, in phase two, from the mid-1960s until the mid-1980s, again, the federal government was enabling um, the acquisition of land uh, and also using federal government land for nonprofit housing. It was providing uh, long-term low-rate financing for non-market housing, and it was creating targets and living up to those targets. So between grants, between financing, there were about um, at least 20,000 non-market homes being created per year. Between 10 and 20 percent of the total housing completions in Canada. This third phase, which has been ushered in by the National Housing Strategy, unlike those two previous phases, um, depends a lot on the private market to deliver affordable housing. And I'm uh, again, since the 30s and the 40s, when um, federal studies into housing need began, um, study after study has said that it is impossible to expect the private sector to deliver 
housing for people who are most in need, like so the lowest 20 percent, the lowest uh, income quintile of Canadian households. And so as, as federal governments were getting out of some of these programs, and, and, and I don't want to spend too much time on, on how things used to be, and we'll get to some of your ideas on how, how maybe things could be and how, how they could improve the situation, but was this just the normal course of politics and people thinking we're spending too much money, or was it a, a philosophical shift to say governments, governments shouldn't be involved in this and we should hand it off to private sectors or other jurisdictions of government? combination in the the late 1980s of concern around federal spending and also a lot of constitutional wrangling that was taking place about what, you know, simplifying things. But the bottom line is that the the Constitution, the, the, the BNA Act of 1867, it had nothing to say about housing. It had nothing to say about climate change. It had very little indeed to say about health. And these are all huge concerns of Canadians today. I mean, the 21st century is not the 19th century. Okay, and so let's get into some of your ideas on on what can be done, what the federal government, uh, for example, could do to address both availability and affordability when it comes to housing. I mean, the numbers are staggering. I mean, you mentioned, uh, I think at one time, and it's not all that long ago for those of us of of a certain age where, you know, a new home might cost two and a half times uh, somebody's salary, and now it might be as much as nine times in some of the bigger cities, Toronto, Vancouver, it's even more than that. So what specifically could be done now, do you think? And is it realistic that that they will be done? Well, I'll start with your first question, or the first part of your question first. So, overall demand has, uh, sorry, overall supply has gone down. Um, we still have the same number, in fact, slightly fewer home completions today that we did 50 years ago in the early 1970s when Canada had half of the population it has now and also households were larger. So there is an issue around overall housing supply and setting targets. Sorry, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. We're building fewer houses now than we were in the 70s? Yes. Yes. We were building about uh, two between 220 and 240. We did have a banner year, um, I think two years ago. No, it would have been last year where we built 220. So we're building fewer, um, completing fewer homes. And yet we all know what's happened to the, and yet we all know what's happened to the population since then. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that that kind of struck me. No, no, I mean, it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking. So a few things happened in the 1970s. One of them was that the federal government had a bunch of tax taxation uh, incentives for uh, purpose-built rental apartments that started falling apart in the 70s. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Um, And that's where you see purpose-built rental construction just fall off a cliff in the early 1970s. Um, And then um, non-market housing fell off a similar cliff uh, in the 1990s when the federal government got out of non-profit housing. So given that non-market housing used to be between 10 and in some years 20% of completions, you can see how it isn't just um, sort of low-cost supply, but overall supply that starts suffering. Um, Yeah, that's, uh, that's the reality, and that's something that this deficit has of housing has built up over 
30 to 50 years, and it's not going to disappear overnight. So, um, you know, am I saying that the, the federal government can wave a magic wand and deal with 30 to 50 years of neglect? No, I can't. But I can say that it needs to get its head around that fairly soon. Um there are a whole bunch of levers ranging from, as I say, taxation to support purpose-built rental, but also looking at all the taxation uh, incentives to treat housing as an investment property as opposed to a place where people can live, um, have to live. Uh, there uh, are finance um, uh, opportunities through low-cost long-term financing, which was the secret sauce for both private market and non-profit uh, rental for, um, you know, from the 50s through to the 70s and then for non-profit into the 90s. So these are all tried and true evidence-based things that the federal government can and should be doing. And Carolyn, whenever we talk about big, complicated issues, and, and housing is certainly big and it's very complicated, involves several layers of jurisdiction and administration, uh, there's sometimes, though, a clear path that people can see uh, to get things done. And then there's a question of, is there the will to follow through? And if those we elect would be willing to even openly talk about some issues that may not be immediately popular. One that you bring up in your uh, writings is... Uh, Perhaps redressing the capital gain shelter on primary residence, which is something that a lot of people have come to rely on. Do you think an issue like that or, or changing that is realistic? Well, look, it's been treated like a um, third rail political issue. There's been some interesting work by an organization called Zen Generation Squeeze around uh, doing some polling that shows that the way that things are phrased matters a lot. I think that a lot of people, and I'm certainly of the boomer generation that was able to become, I was able to become a homeowner at 32 mm -hmm. um, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, we don't realize perhaps how much more difficult, you know, how housing used to be, uh, the average or median priced house used to be 2.5 annual income uh, in 1980. And now it's 8.8 .8 across Canada, over 13 in Vancouver and, and Toronto. And that's, that's just like a completely different world that we're dealing with. Um, another thing that we need to look at, at least, is progressive property taxes. So my home earned more than my husband and I last year, and we paid progressive income taxes on the income that we earned, but we actually didn't pay any more in property taxes on the money that our house earned, partly because there hasn't been a reassessment in Ontario since 2016, and partly because property taxes doesn't matter whether you're a, well, in fact, you're paying more as a renter because you're being, uh, the property taxes are on multi-unit housing, which generally is higher than a single family house. And, um, and that gets passed on to the renter. So the, there's all these policy settings that are harming renters that need to be redressed. And even something that seems as straightforward as, as looking at, you know, zoning policies in municipalities and allowing, uh, you know, four to six story uh, buildings in residential areas mm -hmm. seems like it would address the issue. Uh, seems like there's some common sense involved there. But politically, uh, you know, this all gets back to the not in my backyard syndrome that I think 
you know, most of us fall into at some point or time, that seems like it would be a very difficult one to convince municipalities to do because there's going to be a backlash from their voters. Which is part of the reason that the federal government, I mean, the the federal government can't impose a zoning code, but already, I don't know whether the new minister spoke about the Housing Accelerator Fund, which is a new Mm -hmm. initiative that was announced in the 2022 budget, but it's already recommending um, a four-story minimum uh, in all residential zones and, and 10 stories near train stations. The thing is, do you want all 700 municipalities in Canada, it's actually more than 700, to have their own zoning, their own discussions around zoning, etc.? Or do you need a more senior, higher level of government to go, hey, how about this? And certainly when it comes to both the building code, and there is a national building code, and perhaps a recommended zoning code, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to to bring it up to the highest level of uh, government rather than having, again, 13 different provinces and territories having discussions about it or 700 and whatever it is, 25 municipalities over 5,000 having the same discussions about it. And just one last one, if I could. You mentioned being able to purchase a home. I think you said you were 32, I think, in, in previous generations, although home ownership was not attainable for all. But I think it was always, for most people, in the cards. It was aspirational, and a lot of people were able to get there. And yet now we see so many people in their 20s and 30s who have all but given up on ever being able to own a home. Do you think we'll get back there? Do you think... 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, things will be more reasonable or, 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 or governments just paralyzed when it comes to these sorts of issues? Well, I think it's going to take at least a generation to change. And during that conversation, there's going to need to be a lot more uh, secure rental, larger rental homes available um, for people to be able to have families. But as I say, the challenge is to... Um, have home prices, average home prices, fall by like um, uh, three times uh, to a third of what they are nationally, to a quarter of what they are in places like Vancouver and uh, Toronto. That's going to take a lot, a lot of long-term infrastructure thinking. Uh, Carolyn, some great insight. Thank you for your time this evening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, Sid. What are your expectations when it comes to privacy at work? And of course, now the definition of at work has changed for millions of Canadians. At work used to be pretty straightforward. You take the transit or you take your car, or if you're lucky enough to be able to ride your bike or walk to work, you get to the office, you sit down, you see your boss, and you get to work. Now, so many people are working remotely. And you may be surprised at the lengths that employers are going to to track what you're doing. You're probably aware of some of them, maybe not all of them. And we're joined now by Joe Masudi. Uh, Joe is Senior Policy Analyst at the Dias, which is a public policy and leadership institute at Toronto Metropolitan University. Joe, thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, the headline, uh, the article you co-wrote in the Globe and Mail certainly caught my attention when uh, you say if you're working remotely, you're probably being spied on. Now, there's a, there's a lot of layers to this. And you also took it a step further, the MTU did, and, and, and kind of looked at, at the impacts of, uh, of the way that employers are keeping uh, tabs on 
us as, as we go through our day to day. What is happening? What are employers doing uh, to to make sure I, I'm assuming they're doing it? The, the their explanation would be we have to now that they're not in the office, we just got to keep track of what they're doing so they're not slacking off. Um, well, thank you so much uh, uh, for having me and for um, having interest in this in this topic. Um, well, I mean, uh, perhaps I should just back up a little bit. I mean, the concept of, of uh, uh, workplace surveillance is certainly not new. It's not a new phenomenon. Um, but what is different nowadays is that is how uh, workplace surveillance is augmented by uh, increasingly by digital technologies. Um, and technologies are becoming much more sophisticated. And so, as you rightly uh, pointed out, uh, since the uh, onset of the pandemic with the shift to remote work, um, um, this had led to uh, more individuals obviously working from home, uh, but there were concerns on the part of the employer, uh, mainly if uh, uh, workers are, in fact, um, being productive and truly working uh, from home. Um, and so what this had uh, produced, well, the, con- this, the, the conditions had produced were, um, uh, uh, were uh, increasing sales of, of um, what's known as bossware or software uh, to help, um, uh, to really help monitor uh, employees uh, working from home. And so what sorts of things are happening now? Like, you know, for example, I think it's always been assumed that if you're on company email, uh, you know, your company can kind of, if they wanted to, I'm assuming go in and see what you're doing with your email. If you have a company phone, it's, it's their phone and they might get the bill and be able to say, why are you, you know, making these, what look to be personal calls on company time, but it seems to go much deeper than that now. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, it is. So the, the, the soft, like the types of technologies that are being used are um, collecting more and more, uh, larger volumes of data, um, and the data uh, is, uh, it could range from, uh, it's increasingly becoming uh, more personal and more sensitive. Um, there are reports of, um, of companies even collecting health data, uh, for instance. And so, um, so, so how would are, they do that? Yeah. How would they, how would they collect health data? Uh, well, so there's, there's different types of um, uh, devices that they would um, um, uh, hook up to 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 employees in some instances actually. Um, so there's wearables uh, that are uh, in place um, uh, where employees are uh, are uh, attached to, and so health data gets collected through through those types of devices. Um, so there's some reports that have um, have taken place in parts of the United States, for instance, where these types of trials or experiments have have uh, have occurred. Um, so the, the the types of data um, are uh, there's larger volumes of data and, and a range of t- different types of data that are, that's uh, that's being collected. So that's an area of concern um, uh, uh, as well. And one of the things are and, and it's not the first I'm sure that a lot of people have heard about it, but uh, you know tracking keystrokes. So so you know you're on your laptop or or your desktop at home and your employer can kind of see exactly what you're doing on, on that, uh, on that device? 
Uh, yeah. So, so when we uh, so when we conducted this uh, survey, we were interested uh, to learn uh, more about um, to quantify really the extent of um, these types of uh, practices, workplace surveillance practices taking place um, at home remotely. And um, and uh, so some of the the, the top aspects of um, of uh, uh, that were reported, uh, workplace surveillance practices that were reported, um, were things like email uh, monitoring, emails uh, monitoring, uh, chat messages, um, and just other types of online activities. Uh, but that also the more intrusive kinds of um, uh, monitoring also included uh, keyboard uh, logging. Uh, video uh, uh, recording uh, and location tracking, as well as um, computer screen capture and biometrics. And so now, are these things are these things that the employee is always aware of? For example, is there a, does an employer have to get permission to do these sorts of things? I mean, in some cases, I mean, you talked about that, uh, you know, uh, the you know, collecting the health data and having to strap something to your arm or to your chest or something. Obviously, you know, you you would you would know that that's happening, and and that might just be experimental at this stage. But is the employee always aware of exactly how they're being tracked through the course of the day? Yeah. So so there's a there there's a. a uh, the main uh, mechanisms that uh, would uh, regulate um, workplace surveillance uh, practices in Canada are, are privacy legislation. So, uh, and, and privacy is a bit of a patchwork in, in Canada. Um, so, depending on where individuals would work or what sectors, which geographical location, whether they're unionized or not, so the different types of laws would apply, different types of privacy laws would apply. Um, uh, but even then, the general uh, sense is that, um, or consensus rather, is that um, the laws are quite um, out of date with, and they haven't kept up with the innovations in technology and how um, uh, these types of practices are increasingly becoming much more sophisticated. Um, so, um, related to, to your question, actually, we had asked uh, respondents. Um, whether um, uh, they're, they're aware of the types of um, uh, surveillance practices taking place. And uh, 26% actually indicated um, that, uh, that they didn't know. So um, it's a bit of, uh, I, I guess it's, it, it is a bit of a concern that, um, yes, employers would have uh, a responsibility to inform and be transparent, um, but uh, there's uh, quite a large proportion of uh, respondents that really don't know uh, Joe Masudi is our guest. He's a senior policy analyst at the DIAS, a public policy and leadership institute at Toronto Metropolitan University. Recent survey by MTU indicates that 70% of all employees report having at least some aspect of their work monitored. And Joe, you were saying before the break that uh, perhaps even more surprisingly was that it was the percentage of people who really had no idea uh, that they were being monitored while they were working. Yeah, so just to just to clear that up, um, so the question that we had asked was whether there was any uh, information provided about remote uh, work digital monitoring. Um, and so uh, 26% said uh, there was no information provided. Um, and so that kind of leaves um, individuals, I mean, well, it just gives the impression that uh, individuals aren't aware of whether or not they are being uh, monitored. Um, and so, and, and uh, I should probably also add that um, in Ontario, uh, there was a, uh, an act introduced or legislation that was introduced, the Working for Workers Act uh, 2022, which 
um, um, which required employers, large employers, so employers that had more than 25 employees, to introduce um, uh, a policy and provide a written policy to employees um, whether or not they were uh, being electronically monitored. And so we introduced this survey in light of that uh, and mm-hmm. to just to see if, you know, if, uh, if employees were provided any written, um, were provided a written policy to provide, to explain to them uh, whether they were provided any, uh, whether they're aware of any electronic monitoring taking place. And so, um, and so 26% indicates that uh, none at all. And I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that that are looking at it from the perspective of an employer and saying, well, if I'm paying someone to do a job, at a certain level, I have the right to know whether that job is being carried out and whether the time is being spent productively and how do I do that? You know, three years ago I could do because I could, you know, walk down the hall and see them and talk to them. And now, uh, you know, I have to take their word for it or find other means to do it. And you talked earlier about privacy laws. And I think in the age that we live in, those kind of laws and regulations are always playing catch up with the technology, which is advancing so quickly. Uh, But I'm also interested uh, in the, in your follow-up in, in kind of looking into okay, so I'm an employee and I know my employer is doing this and maybe I had a choice, but it's not much of a choice if I want to stay right. employed. And yeah. how, how, this, how this impacts me, how this knowledge now impacts me when I know uh, if I type this on my computer, if I go to this website, if, if, if I'm being monitored by video, how I, yeah. how I look and how I conduct myself, what kind of an impact that has on me as a person? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good question. And, and, and uh, you know, like going back to your earlier point about like how this is kind of being framed as an employer versus an employee or, you know, the boss versus the worker. I'm, it's, um, I don't believe that that framing is an accurate way in which people should view this. I think mm-hmm. um, just the sophistication of the technologies that are taking place, the increasing use of artificial intelligence uh, making its way into the workforce, these are having real-world implications on people. Those types of um, automated processes are uh, producing, making decisions that affect workers in very real ways. It could lead to promotions, demotions, termination. It can influence, you know, managerial decisions. So it's and and that has implications not just for the worker. Um, sure, the worker is impacted. Uh, in a very direct way, but it also impacts the employer as well. Um, it's very clear that that, that um, when productivity is affected, when staff morale is low, when human beings are are becoming miserable as a result of um, the technologies that are deployed and the very careless type of thinking that um, that leads to the deployment of technologies in workplaces, um, that could all impact uh, the employer's bottom line, and so. Um, the, the consequences are far more reaching. Um, it's not just uh, an encroachment on the privacy rights of individual workers, uh, but it's also a, a broader social problem. Um, there can, these can produce um, health implications. Individuals can actually um, um, have, um, you know, there can be health consequences. Individuals can have um, develop um, depression, anxiety, um, and a lot of things can manifest into like physical um, uh, pain and ailments, uh, including repetitive stress injury. It is a, it is one of those complicated issues, and I, I think we all knew uh, when, 
when the and I know people are going to say the pandemic hasn't ended, but when 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 things started getting back to normal and employers were giving in many instances employees the option of working at home, I think we all knew there could be a lot of complications and a lot of factors that would have to be worked through. And 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 this monitoring uh, really seems to be one of them. Uh, we do it, it, it really. Uh, thank you for your time. It's been it's been enlightening, and and I'm sure there are people now that might be. Uh, you know, kind of looking around their uh, their home office tomorrow <laughs> when they when they sit down, when they sit down yeah. to start working. Uh, Joe, yeah. thank you. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Uh, but right now, something just as important and and just as meaningful. We're going to talk pop music with Eric Alper, who's a publicist and a music commentator. He's appeared on this network many times. Eric, thanks for coming on with us tonight. I love that segue. The earth is saved. So let's talk about mindless pop music and why songs all sound the same. Well, while we're, while we're saving the world, while we're saving the world, we got to be tapping our toes, don't we? Absolutely. For sure. And while we're fighting in the streets, it needs a really great soundtrack. And by the way, our uh, our technical producer Talia was uh, was asking me uh, just on the break. She was she was wondering if you have Taylor Swift tickets for Toronto. <laughs> if I say yes, does that mean then uh, my phone is going to blow up? Um, uh, I am I am like everybody else. I pay for my tickets. I don't get any freebies. Um, I stopped getting freebies when I told them I don't want freebies because I don't want those favors to come back to me. Um, so I am one of the lucky ones that do have a code for tomorrow tomorrow just by chance because my daughter doesn't have a code and she is by far more important than I am. <laughs> well, I, I, well you, you are, you are right in one sense. There is nothing worse than everybody in the world knowing that you might have access to tickets to whether it's a big concert or a sporting event or anything else. It's better. Yeah. It's better if you just pay I mean, for it. you know, not to go off on a tangent, but this is this is astonishing. I mean, I I lived through the whole Prince Purple Rain, Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson thriller era. Um, this doesn't even come close. I mean, and even with the Beatles, with Beatlemania, um, even though that there were four of them and only one Taylor Swift, um, their last show at Candlestick Park back in 1965 wasn't even sold out. There were still tickets available. You cannot... Uh, you cannot put enough homes up for your second mortgage, it, it, you know, on the secondary market for for how how high these tickets prices are going to go. This is this is something that the music industry has never seen. It's it's raised the GDP in the U.S. by 0.2 percent last month. Um, these six shows in Toronto are going to grow somewhere in the neighborhood of 660 million dollars oh, as an economic boom because, on average, each person is spending about 1,800 dollars Canadian each person on tickets, wow. food, beer. Uh, hotel, transportation, gas, parking, all of that. So this is a huge economic boom, not just for Toronto, but Ontario and Canada. We had a, a niece that just went to uh, a Taylor Swift show in Los Angeles. I guess it was just last week. Mm. I think she was there for yeah. for the Thursday show. And before she went, she was showing me the, uh, pictures on her phone of, of the outfit that she was going to wear. And she made it all herself. She painted some shoes. And I know it's the eras and, and oh, that's great. all the... All the things on the shoes were very meaningful, but not to me. And I was, I thought, you know, so this isn't just like the Eagles where you just show up and maybe buy a T-shirt while you're there. <laughs> it, is, it is quite the phenomenon. Yeah. Did she say that, you know, my seats were in San Francisco, but the show was actually in Los Angeles? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't get into that with her. But Yeah, uh, okay. Uh, all right. All indications are it was the time of her life. So Amazing. That's what it's, that's what it's all about.
Okay, so Eric, why do all pop songs sound the same? Um, well, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, in fact, that there have been a number of studies done in the last decade. In fact, Swedish, Spanish scientists almost 10 years ago, they took a look at 500,000 songs over a 55-year period of the Billboard Hot 100 and said, yes, all songs sound the same. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, the big one right now is just the fact that the music industry does not want to take any chances. And so if one band or one artist does really, really well, 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 the A&R departments, they are the uh, the group of people at record label that are responsible for signing new talent. Um, they're going to want their own little piece of that. We saw it during Nirvana. When Nirvana broke big, everybody can go, you know, went over to Seattle to sign anything with plaid. And anybody that looked grunge um, was signed. And we see that now with K-pop groups like BTS and Blackpink blowing up on the charts. Well, now they've got record labels on over to to North and South Korea in order to sign pop groups. Um, but the easy kind of answer um, is that if you take a look at the Billboard Hot 100, there are a lot of single artists. I'm not talking about artists that are, aren't in a relationship. But when you have one artist like an Ed Sheeran, a Taylor Swift, a Katy Perry, um, the amount of creativity is only as good as that person is. When you have a band made up of four members like the Beatles or Five with the Stones or Imagine Dragons or um, Maroon 5, um, you have various creative outlets throughout that band. The drummer might be into jazz, the guitarist might be into folk, and that kind of atomic bomb within a band actually breeds creativity. So because there's not a lot of bands right now on the chart, in fact, the Eagles and um, the Stones and Imagine Dragons and Queen are really three of the biggest rock artists on the Billboard album chart. So you end up with just more of the same simply because there's not that much creativity going on, not only in the music industry, but also artist by artist. The demise of the band, you know, and that's a whole other topic, maybe for uh, for uh, for another night or another show. But uh, it was many years ago, and uh, someone said to me once, or uh, that uh, you know, you two might be the last band where we know the names of every single person in the band. We know the name of the the guitarist and the bassist and the singer and the drummer, and and, and yeah. here we are, so many years later, and it's it's just those single artists that are still producing in many cases, you know, really great music, but it's but it's a completely different uh, setup and scenario, as you say. Yeah, and it's also that there's way more choices to get your music. Um, you know, back when U2 was releasing the Joshua Tree in 1987. Uh, their videos were everywhere. Much Music, MTV, um, Rolling Stone magazine, maybe four or five other magazines that were national. That was it. That's all you had to go for. You had no idea what Duran Duran's new hairstyle was in the 1980s, unless you happened to pick up a copy of that month magazine that might have been published three months ago from the UK. Now you can have a, an artist that's 40 or 50 million streams on Spotify and never even getting close to cracking the surface of everybody in Canada or in America know who you are. It's like the number one album sold 450,000 copies this week. There are 410 million people in America um, and Canada. That's not, that's like, you know, that's one-tenth of the percentage of people who have that album, who know who that artist is. That's much different when Springsteen and Madonna and Prince mm -hmm. and, and everybody from the 80s and 90s 
everybody knew who they were. These are the chords. Messenger. Um, that's um, your friend. Because um, uh, you only need the light when it's burning low. Only miss the sun when it starts to snow. Only know you love her when you let her go. Let it be. I'm walking away, Craig David. Craig uh, David. I'm walking away from the troubles in my life. Last one, let it be. Beatles. When I find myself in times of trouble, brother man. Ed Sheeran, who famously uh, not that long ago uh, won his case where he was uh, accused of uh, stealing another song. Eric, I know you've talked about about that case, so I won't I won't get into uh, too much in depth with it with you. But what was your opinion on the outcome of that case? Oh, I thought it could have gone either way, only because, um, you know, there's only a certain amount of notes and there's only a certain amount of chord that are pleasing to the ears. So, um, you know, if I'm a songwriter, I, I'm kind of a little bit nervous um, and, you know, which I'm not <laughs> um, a songwriter in the, in the least bit. But I think it's so much it's it's so much easier now to sue a very well-known artist with their popular song because thanks to the internet, um, everybody has access to the same material. We have access to 150 million different songs that are on Spotify and YouTube. So somebody halfway around the world can write a song by coincidence, just similar to an Ed Sheeran hit. And we know about it. That would have never happened 30 or you know, 25 years ago when it was almost impossible for music to get heard outside of wherever you were hearing in the first place. Yeah. Uh, before the break, I mentioned th- yeah. this issue of uh, of these, and I don't know if they're corporations, individuals, wealthy people who are buying up catalogs, and it's been going on. It's not, it's not something that just happened in the last few months. It's been going on for years now. They spend, in some cases, hundreds of million dollars to buy these back catalogs of music from individual artists or bands. Why are they doing that? What are they doing with it? And and does this lead into this sort of sameness that we're hearing come out of the speakers on the radio or our streaming services? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Stevie Nicks, Paul Simon, Tina Turner when she was alive. Um, all and sorry, sorry, if I, sorry yeah, before, they, I, um, I don't mean to interrupt. But, yeah. but those are the kind of artists I always thought would not sell their music. Like you're naming yeah. sort of those ones that you thought, okay, these are like the folk artists, the, the roots artists that, uh, that are never going to let somebody else own their music. So that, that in itself was surprising to me. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, you know, you put a check for $250 million <laughs> in front of you and you can suddenly change your mind about credibility. Um, but, but what it is, is it's not just the money that these venture capitalists and big banks and big corporations are buying up the rights to exploit all their back catalog. Um, but because the money is absolutely a big reason for it. But uh, there's also another couple of reasons that if you're Bruce Springsteen and you sell your catalog for half a billion dollars, you now know where your money is going to be coming from. And it's all in your pocket. So when you die, you don't want to find out in the afterlife that your family is now fighting over your estate. You can actually start dividing up and taking care of not only your family, but future generations of your bloodline to ensure that there's no miscommunication, that everybody is going to get X amount. Um, The other reason is that if you're Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or Tina Turner or David Bowie, you want 
everlasting love. You want your legacy. And I don't care if people will always say, I don't care what happens when I'm dead because I'm dead. That is never the case with these people. They want to make sure that Bruce Springsteen is the next Mozart, is the next Beethoven. There's no reason to believe that the rock music of the 60s and 70s aren't going to be the next version of classical music that we could be hearing 200 years down the road. And with this kind of money, um, all these companies are going to exploit it for everything that it's worth. So you're going to be hearing Springsteen and Bob Dylan in television commercials, in radio spots, in airplay, in TV shows. Um, but it's, it's everywhere. It's, you know, these companies are going to get paid wherever music is getting played. That's your Peloton, you know, your video games, your, um, you know, your, your theatrical performance. Right now on Broadway, there's four different pop artists whose music had turned into a Broadway show, including Britney Spears. That's where the, the over and over and over again money is going to come in. Um, and so that's pretty much it. You know, there's a big chunk of change in front of you. There's that everlasting legacy. And, uh, and you know, now you have a team of people that's willing to work really, really hard to make sure that you are never forgotten about. And so an artist like uh, Elton John, who hasn't sold his, unless he did it yeah. since we've been on the air, who still owns the rights to his music, as I understand it. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the song that he does with Dua Lipa, uh, if, he had, if he didn't control his own uh, music, somebody that did could have done that collaboration and he would have no say in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And or he could, you know, if it's not written in the contract, um, they could use it for toilet paper. They could use it for um, for the local burger shop down the street if the money is right. Um, but, you know, for somebody like Elton John specifically, he said that his songs are going to his to his children and, and that that's what's going to be their legacy. Um, but, you know, as we quickly are finding out, um, when Priscilla Presley, who ran the Elvis Presley estate um, for, you know, all the time that Elvis, since the time really that Elvis Presley passed away, ran Graceland, that was a giant mess. Or even Aretha Franklin, where suddenly you had, um, you know, people battling it out between brothers and sisters and cousins, or even Prince, who didn't leave a will, and look at what happened. 65 mm -hmm. people in America came out as the apparent heir or son and daughter to Prince, and they had to ballot out in court, and that's money that is not well spent when you're trying to, you know, get some of that money, but almost all of it is going to lawyers. So, um, you know, for a lot of artists, they just want to, you know, live the the last remaining decade or two look all those people they're they're you know look i'm old you're old we're all getting old dylan is 80 years old paul simon is 80 springsteen is 73 stevie nicks is 73 neil young is 76 so they just kind of want to be able to take a look at their career and say i've got no pressure i've got my money i can record when i want to and other people are taking care of my business for me and so having said all of this, and we, we've talked about, you know, sort of the, the sameness, the apparent sameness in the sounds that we're hearing and the songs and the artists, but are, are we at the end of the day, where are we in terms of me? Are, are we in a good place? Because if you look at what, uh, you know, there are thousands of people, millions of people uh, in Canada that would say, well, I'm a Taylor Swift fan or I'm a Luke Combs fan and I, I like music just the way it is. We're doing just fine. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, the music industry bounced back pretty quick after COVID. We were one of the first industries to get shut down for COVID, and we were the last ones to open, including, you know, that live aspect of it. But right now, more people are seeing more concerts around the world than in music history. Um, there's more music being listened to that's more accessible at a cheaper price than ever in our entire lives. So, yeah, I would say it's, it's, in, a, it's in a pretty great state, you know. Obviously, you know, there's a little bit of say in in the low streaming number, but it was always like that. It was always the the, the top one-tenth of one percent were making about 80% of the money, and that's like that in business. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think a better question is when you're an independent artist um, trying to kind of, you know, break out, how on earth are you going to be competing with Bob Dylan and Stevie Nicks and Bruce Springsteen still for the next 50 years while all those companies who bought their cow are trying to make sure that those artists are listened to. So, you know, there's no downturn anymore with some of the the music where popularity can go up and down. Like, these artists might be as strong as they are 50 years from now, and that's got to be a little bit daunting when you're just trying to reach, you know, 150 fans somewhere online. That's a great point, because when those artists you mentioned were were just starting out, they were competing against each other. They were all just starting out. Uh, Eric, uh, thanks so much uh, for your time tonight, and and good luck with the Taylor Swift tickets. (laughs) The scream you hear tomorrow morning will be me if I get tickets, or if I don't. Either way, Uh, it's all good. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. It's it's not there yet, but but if it if it pans out, could be uh, really life altering. Uh, it could be that big. We're joined now by uh, Elena Hallis, who's principal investigator at the Stuart Blesson Quantum Matter Institute at the University of British Columbia, as Bill Maher might say, my old job, uh, to talk about uh, a, a thing that's got sort of the scientific world and, in fact, maybe the world more broadly all abuzz. It's news of the uh, LK99, which is purported to be a new room temperature superconductor. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Not been confirmed yet. Uh, Alana, welcome to the program. We really appreciate you spending some time with us this evening. Hi, it's it's great to speak to you, and it's nice to do an interview in my pajamas. <laughs> well, that's one of the benefits. It's nice to conduct an interview in my pajamas, too. That's one of the benefits of, of working uh, in the evening. And now, full disclosure, I mean, this is, uh, this is a pretty big scientific topic, and I, and I will say that um, you know, I'm the sort of guy that still looks at, a, at an eraser on the end of a pencil as a great advancement. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm in my infancy in terms of trying to understand what this means or could mean potentially. So if, if we can maybe start at the beginning in terms of what a superconductor is and what this new find, if it turns out uh, to be what the, the researchers think it is, could mean for all of us. Yeah, I think you're in very good company. I think a lot of the world has been learning what a superconductor is over the last couple of weeks. So a superconductor is uh, something that we've known about for a very long time. Uh, It was discovered all the way back in 1911. But for a very long time, it's been something that we only observed at very low temperature. So what a superconductor is, is a state in a material that allows it to conduct electricity with zero electrical resistance. And it's important here to specify that zero really means zero. It doesn't just mean very small. So that means if I had a wire 
um, that was made of a superconductor and I passed an electrical current through it, that wire wouldn't heat up. And so this is something we're all familiar with from our electronics, that when we run them for a long time, they get hot. And that's because the metals inside are, are generating some resistance. Um, and so if we had wires that were made of superconductors, they wouldn't have that at all. Um, the second property of a superconductor, and the one that I think has captured a lot of people's attention in this case, is that it completely expels magnetic fields. And so that means if I place a superconductor on top of a magnet, uh, it will levitate. And so why is that important? Like, what does that mean if when it levitates? Ah, so it, it's uh, not potentially the most important aspect of a superconductor. It's just cool? But it, yeah, it's cool and it's characteristic of the material. So it's kind of one of those uh, things you can check. If you think you have a superconductor, then you would want to be able to observe that. But it could be important for some applications. So um, one one case is magnetic levitating trains, where um, instead of the kind of wheels of the train actually making physical contact with the track, which causes a lot of friction and slows the train down, if you had uh, a superconducting uh, track, then the train would levitate just above it and it could potentially go much faster. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And with no resistance. That's uh... exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now in terms of this discovery, um, where are we now? Uh, my understanding is, so they, they put this out there, which is not unusual. Hasn't been peer reviewed yet. Uh, I don't think, which again, uh, uh, my understanding is that's not unusual, but there are other scientists that are sort of trying to test this and trying to replicate to see if they can come up with the same results. Is that where we're at right now? Yeah, that's exactly right. So this new paper or uh, preprint uh, came out about two weeks ago, and it made this claim that these researchers, a group from Korea, had um, claimed that they have discovered a superconductor, the same kind of zero-resistance levitating type of material, but that it does that at a much higher temperature than was previously known. So kind of the state of the art in the field of superconductivity is um, kind of in the neighborhood of minus 100 Celsius, so too cold to be practical for everyday applications. And this paper is claiming that this material, LK99, superconducts at 100 degrees Celsius, so a kind of 200-degree jump. And uh, where we kind of are in the state of verifying that claims is that um, many groups now in the past two weeks have attempted to replicate their findings, and they're also posting their results on this um, preprint server, so also not peer-reviewed. But the sort of uh, disappointing trend so far is that um, uh, these attempts at verification have not really panned out. So, so far, um, the results are, are not looking to be reproducible. And so how long does does this process normally take, or or is it different just depending on different circumstances? Like, should we expect to know definitively within a matter of, of months, or, or how long would you, do you suppose it might take? So I would say normally reproduction could take years, uh, but in this case, the the excitement has just generated this monumental effort. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, it's aided a little bit by the fact that this particular material, the recipe is not that complicated to, to try and make it in the lab. Groups have been able to um, get into the lab and, and try to recreate this phenomena very quickly. Um, and so I think uh, that we're kind of approaching a consensus. I wouldn't say it's completely there yet and there's still room. You know, the moment another group comes out and says, we confirm that there's 
superconductivity at room temperature, then then we're back in the game. But um, I would say at this point, the the signs are not looking good. Um, but full kind of verification might take a few more weeks or months. Now, so so the scientists that that put this out there then, and I think LK is that their initials or something? I was reading. Yeah, that's exactly right. So normally, if you see capital letters uh, and it's referring to a chemical, you would assume they're chemical elements. But in this case, it's not. It's uh, the last initials of kind of the two main authors, so Lee and Kim. And 99 is the year that they started working on these materials, 1999. So if if, if other scientists are having uh, difficulties to this point, sort of replicating that and confirming it, is this something where they may have kind of jumped the gun or is this sort of, is this how science works where you put it out there and then let, let other people test it? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think it's uh, perfectly normal within sort of our area of physics to share preliminary results, either in the form of a manuscript or at a conference giving a talk. Um, and, you know, depending on how important or newsworthy those results may be, um, people may or may not kind of jump on them right away. But in this case, it's such a sensational claim that mm-hmm. um, people are not kind of willing to wait for it to go full, through full peer review before um, trying to attempt to replicate it. Okay. And so if we suspend disbelief just for a moment, and maybe this, maybe this goes the way it appears that it may be going, or maybe uh, somebody can replicate it and, and, and it becomes great news uh, in a few weeks or, or a few months. Uh, what other, like... I'm assuming now this is clean energy and an endless supply of clean energy. If at some point as humans, we can kind of crack this code. Uh, Yeah. So it wouldn't necessarily um, facilitate energy production, but it would definitely facilitate more, more efficient use of the energy that we're already producing. So the same thing that I described earlier, where wires heat up um, as you pass electricity through them, the same thing is happening in our power lines and all of our Mm -hmm. electronics. So, um, you could imagine if you had the perfect material that met all of these engineering requirements, uh, it could facilitate lossless uh, power transmission, and that would be enormous. Um, but there's many other possible applications of a superconductor. Um, uh, computing, quantum computing, uh, they're very important for MRIs. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of potential benefits to humanity if, if such a material were to be found. And I think one, you know, Although the excitement may be getting tempered at this stage for this particular material, for LK99, I still think it's such a good news story that uh, many people have learned about what superconductors are. And, you know, myself and many other groups across the world are still looking for materials that might meet this challenge of, of superconducting at room temperature. And um, it won't be the last uh, material that we sort of hear about in this context. So even if this one doesn't pan out, we shouldn't lose all hope. And are there certain materials that we know of that we think could, in the proper uh, you know, formula with other compounds, lead to this? Are, are there certain things that we, we, we think are out there, or is it are we just kind of hoping and, and, and kind of going in, not blind, but maybe not with as much background as, as we might think we have? How, how, do we, how, do we, how do we come up with that next formula that might be the one? Yeah, that is such a good question. It's, you know, it's not just the million dollar question. It's probably the billion dollar question. Um, It's very difficult to predict uh, what material could have this property. So one of the biggest breakthroughs in this field, actually the last 
you know, huge breakthrough in the field of superconductivity came in 1986. And it was a discovery that was made purely experimentally. So a material was made in the lab. It was shown to have superconductivity at unprecedented temperatures, still far below room temperature, but that was not predicted um, whatsoever. Um, and we're still working to sort of understand why that material has the, the property that it does. So um, I think if a discovery like this is made, it's very likely to be made in the lab and with a little bit of luck. Well, sometimes luck is, is the way to go. Uh, and, and we know there's a lot of work being put into it as well. And, and we do thank you for your time today. It's, uh, I know it captured a lot of people's imaginations. As you say, a lot of people are just learning about superconductors and, and what the implications might be if this one pans out. And if not, what a future one uh, might mean to, uh, to all of us, really, because there would be a lot of uh, really interesting and worthwhile applications. Uh, Elena, thank you very much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. And uh, our next guest uh, makes me a little nervous. Uh, She's been on these airways before. Her voice will likely be very familiar. It's Kelsey Campbell, executive producer, network programming, chorus radio. In other words, my boss. But here tonight (laughs) in her capacity as one of the most avid campers I have ever known. How are you doing, Kelsey? Hey, Sid. You're sounding good. I think think tomorrow night's on. Well, yeah, we might be back tomorrow night if this interview works out. Um, I was thinking of you last week, uh, had the chance to visit one of our great mountain parks in Banff. And it's not like it used to be. It's always been busy. But now, I mean, you need to take shuttles to go into Moraine Lake. Now, for those who've never been, I mean, you've definitely seen the pictures. I mean, if you just Google Banff, Mm -hmm. Moraine Lake is one of the first images that come up. Beautiful emerald green lake. You walk up on these rocks and... The only problem with it is there's two pine trees that always get in the way of the picture. But other than that, very pristine, very nice. Uh, Lake Louise, you need to take a shuttle now to go into Lake Louise, where you used to be able to just drive in and get that picture that everybody needs of you standing on the rocks with the lake in the background. And 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 it's just because there's so many people. Uh, and I don't know if it's only because of COVID, but certainly during COVID, when all you could do was go outside, all you could do was camp, people... Some people, I'm sure, took it up for the first time. Other people went back to it where maybe they hadn't done it in a while. And it's not related to only mountain parks. It's I, I, I saw today we're Ontario. This year is the first year uh, they've had to limit the number of days that people can stay in campsites. It used to be, I think, 23 days max in some of them. Now they're down to 14, in other cases, seven. Manitoba has said to come out and publicly pledge that they will create more campsites to try and keep up with demand. This is quite the phenomenon uh, that really has only bubbled up here over the last two or three years, it seems. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I think we all knew summer 2020 was when we just saw this people bursting out of their homes because they'd been limited to their literal bubble in their home. Um, but I think where things changed is actually allowing online bookings. I, I I grew up camping, like every single week of the summer was spent camping and my parents would take turns commuting from the campground. We took it very seriously. But where we got the edge on out-of-towners, like we're not even talking about people out of province. Like I grew up in, in the interior of BC and so Albertans aren't going to come and line up at five in the morning outside of the park to pay cash for first come, first serve, which will 
is what it was when I was growing up and you're paying $8 a night. And I remember my parents complaining when those prices went up and that's when you could take as much wood as you wanted for free. And yes. now the costs have skyrocketed and you, you don't have the, the eager people who are willing to stand outside of the gates anymore because most provincial parks have completely eliminated first come first serve because of the appetite for this. And if you really, really want in, you need to have every single device at your fingertips and so the timing of this conversation is really, really raw for me because I actually have next week booked off. And the mm -hmm. whole reason I booked it off was I planned with some family friends to take my son on a camping trip to one of my favorite campgrounds that I grew up with. And and they've actually changed it for BC Parks uh, to make it a little bit easier to plan your summer to see if you will be able to get a campsite for when you want to go. You can book mm -hmm. exactly four months out to the date that you're going to book in. And so four months ago, I had multiple people with multiple devices. I had a laptop, a computer, and, and, and my cell phone on BC Parks. And you have to be there for 7 a.m. It opens up four months out. 7 a.m., there was about uh, 16, 20 devices all working for me trying to get a campsite. And uh -huh. 701 rolled around, and the park went from empty that day to completely booked up in less than 60 seconds. And none of us got a site. No. Not you got one shut out. person. Completely shut out. And I completely forgot to tell my friends I didn't get a campsite for next week. So they're pulling their trailer up from the lower no, mainland thinking we're, no, thinking we're going camping. They just reached out to do some meal planning today. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I completely Well, the meal forgot. planning just got a little easier. We're not, we're not using an open fire anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, parking in my driveway. I was looking at the stats, and I'm sure people have heard this. It was in 2020 that I think more people said that they've been camping than they like. They might have gone once, but mm -hmm. in 2020, about 33% of Canadians said they'd been camping their entire lives, like at least one time. And in 2020, 5% of Canadians went camping for the first time that year ever. And that's actually a significant amount of the population. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that's where we we really, really felt it. And it was very amusing. In 2020, I was living in Alberta and I went to a campground and you could tell the newbies, like people who had no business owning RVs, <laughs> had hooked up, <laughs> pulled it out there. And there was this family, it was, I think it was two families together and they were in this really tiny RV, but no one had told them about the jacks and that you got to put those right, down to balance right. the trailer. And so they just had, it was balancing on a, a couple of wheels and the family raced into the go to bed and it did a full flip and it was absolutely Ooh. vertical in the air. Oh. And I went to race out, a bunch of people went to race out to see if they were okay, but they clearly kind of threw themselves across the trailer. So it balanced back out and they all came out looking a little bit sheepish and somebody went over and just showed them how those jacks work that you roll them down. So no serious injuries, but I saw all kinds of crazy things like that where people just didn't know what they were doing, but they wanted to get the heck out of their houses. Well, years ago we went camping with, uh, with another couple and, uh, they had uh, rented, uh, thankfully it was only a tent trailer. Or no, they didn't rent it. They borrowed it from somebody. But it never uh, dragged a trailer or certainly never had backed up with a trailer before. And and I'll still remember, uh, like, after about 30 or 40 attempts to kind of back into this camping spot, I finally said, why don't we just unhook it and we'll, like, manually just run it back in there. And we did that in about a minute. It was <laughs> it was much easier and less painful than than watching uh, him try to back oh, up. I wouldn't have been much better. Yes. Uh, yeah, because it's, it's, I, 
it's not that long ago. Like, I mean, I, mean, I guess in a, in a way, but within the last 20 years, I can remember literally getting off work on a Friday, driving three hours, uh, and we would just, we would get a camping spot right on a lake. And then it changed after a few years where if you wanted on the lake, uh, you'd have to take Friday off and go on Thursday. And then after they just kind of implemented, a, I think it was just like sort of a, uh, honor system where there was nobody at the campsite, but so you would just go find where you wanted to camp and they would say it's like eight or 10 bucks a night or whatever. And if you stayed four nights, you'd put 40 bucks in an envelope, write the n- number that you stayed at and just put it mm-hmm. in this, uh, this mailbox. And to think now, and, uh, you know, I've, the only camping I've done over the last several years is just a little bit of crown land. So I've, I've sort of uh, been able to escape all of this, uh, you know, trying to find a, a campsite in the same way that other people are trying to get Taylor Swift tickets. That just seems incredible to me. Oh, it is. It is fierce. I mean, and the costs are almost Taylor Swift <laughs> concert ticket level now. I just pulled up my transaction information in May. I went for four nights at a, at a campsite in the BC interior, and it's $32 a night plus $6 per night fee. Plus, if you bring an extra vehicle, depending on the campsite, you can pay about $20 per night for the extra vehicle that you have there. And if you aren't super technologically savvy, uh, you and you want to call the 1-800 number to book through BC Parks, you actually have to pay a fee to talk to somebody in customer service. Uh, So it cost me $147 for four nights um, with with the tax and, and the fees. But Interestingly enough, it comes to before all the extra fees for the taxes, it's $32 a night, which is what four nights cost us in my childhood. Um, <laughs> right. Like for eight bucks a night. And yeah, I see the, yeah. way, the, the waste that I'm seeing now. I mean, yes, inflation. I'm just thinking like these fees, you know, I, I love the you see the memes out there of like the different fees and it's like the fee FIFO fum fee. Like it's just random fees for, for these transactions. But where I'm really seeing waste and where I've wasted my money and I've wasted a campsite is how you said you could pull out on a Friday night after work and pull up to a rec site or even a, a provincial campground before um, maybe a decade ago. You will not get anything if you're booking for a Friday night. So people have to, you have to start booking for a Tuesday night if you want to spend this following weekend camping with friends and family. So people are paying for three or four nights that they're not going to use just so that they can camp on the weekend as planned. I can remember, and never mind provincial, I can remember going to Banff National Park. Uh, it would be about 20 years ago and literally getting there in the dark, no bookings. You pulled up and there was usually somebody at the gate and you just tell them, yeah, we're going to stay here for three nights or whatever. And you, there was a fee at that time, I think, already. You'd pay the money and they'd say, yeah, go find a spot. You just drive around in the dark until you found an empty spot. You pitch your tent and you're camping. Yeah, good luck and with that now. And sadly, those days are gone. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but at the National Park, the one thing that I found the perk there is you're you're paying the park fees and and pretty significant fees because they're trying to protect the, the natural aura of the area. But... Are you still getting heaps of free wood because they're still trying to keep like all of the different insects and creatures out, right? So they don't want people bringing them to their campgrounds. Right. No, it's been so long since I've camped in an organized campground that, uh, yeah, I, right. I think You're even a true when, mountain man. 
I think no, I I think even in like this tail uh, end of when our kids were still small and we were we were going camping, you were already. Um, I don't think we had to pay for it at that time, but I think you had to like literally be there when they unloaded the wood, or you wouldn't get any. Like it was very very Just hard gone. to come by. Yeah, yeah. And now, now I'm just kind of complaining about cost, but it's amazing <laughs> that this is this has picked up so much because people are willing and people are willing to spend so much money to be outside and live in the dirt and sit by a campfire. Um, but there was one campground that I went to in southern Alberta a couple of summers ago, and it was it was something like thirty six dollars, and we got three pieces of firewood. Like you didn't have to, you didn't have to chop it with an ax. It was small enough that you could throw it right in the fire pit, but it was $36 for three pieces of wood. Uh, see, and and here, here we it. are, here we are just <laughs> planning for the good old days, right? And maybe we're in the middle of the good old days and we just don't even know it. Uh, but it is, I mean, it's one of those things, right? Where, it, I mean, the population has exploded and, you know, if you got an extra 10 million people living in the country and even a small percentage of them want to take up camping, uh, and we still have the same number of parks and campsites as we did 20 or 30 years ago. I think that's from Manitoba's onto something if they're looking to develop new ones. But I don't know how much uh, I don't know how much you can do and how fast you can do it to kind of keep up with demand. But anyway, we're still doing it. People are still going to be online tomorrow looking to book a campsite four months in advance and see if they can get in. I'm going to keep checking for next week because you never know. Somebody blows a tire out. Maybe may, a campsite's may. coming up. <laughs> well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Sid.